Listener Production. I never thought a case would affect me this much. Yeah, my bucket's full, it's overflowed, still is, and uh, I don't understand it now. I'm trying to work it out. In January 1970, three-year-old Cheryl Grimmer disappeared without trace from Ferry Meadow Beach in New South Wales. This is the story of two dedicated cops who will just not give up. In 2016, Wollongong investigators Damien Loon and Frank Sanvitale found a confession made by a troubled teenager one year after Cheryl was taken from the beach in broad daylight. They tracked the suspect down and charged him with murder. Unfortunately, the accused killer walked free when the confession was ruled inadmissible. A suppression order on the man's identity has allowed him to continue his life as if the confession never happened. This injustice has gone around the world in the BBC's Fairy Meadow podcast, but the case has now come to a standstill. Damien and Frank are both retired, but for them, the story is not over. Their message, if police continue to work on the case and the alleged confessor, there can still be a result, even after half a century. Welcome to Real Crime Australian Detectives. I'm your host, Adam Shand. Let me welcome to the studio now... Retired Detectives Senior Constable Frank Sanvitali and Retired Detective Sergeant Damien Loon. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning and thank you. Thank you, Adam. January 12, 1970. Cheryl Jean Grimmer disappears from Ferry Meadow Beach. Her body's never found. No one's been effectively brought to justice all these years later. The case is probably, you would say, one of the colder ones in Australian history. Let's go right back to the beginning. What was happening on Ferry Meadow Beach, Damien? Well, it was a Monday, 12th of January 1970. A stinking hot day as usual. We get down there on the south coast. Uh, Mrs Grimmer decided to take the four kids to the beach, including Cheryl, the youngest. Her husband, he was working in the Australian Army up at the Penrith Barracks, so he was away from home. And as usual, they lived at the Ferry Meadow Hostel, 600 metres from the beach. And what most people would do on a on a hot day, they'd wander across the road to Ferry Meadow and have a swim. And as typically it does normally on the south coast, the wind blows up about lunchtime, there's always a southerly that pops up, and uh, it became uncomfortable for them to be on the beach. So Carol Grimm had instructed her eldest son to take the three other little ones up to the, the shower block to have a shower, which, as you know, I can remember doing that as a kid. And uh, little Cheryl was uh, being a little bit naughty. She wouldn't return to the beach when the boys walked down towards the beach with her mother. So Ricky left her for a moment, maybe a couple of minutes, and he went down and told his mother that Cheryl was playing up a wooden come. So the mother stormed up to the, the shower block up there on the um, pavilion just above the beach, and uh, Cheryl's nowhere to be seen despite some frantic searching in the area. And this beach, there was a lot of people there. Yes. There should have been a number of witnesses who saw what happened. Yes, and there were there were people there, uh, and we did track some down in that time frame, and obviously in the 1970 investigation they did as well. But as you can imagine, it was chaotic because at the time the wind blew up, blowing you know the stinging hot sand in the back of your legs, and I think we can all we've all experienced that. That there were people leaving at the same time, you know, 
picking up kids, putting them over their shoulders, people wandering into their cars. So it was no different. So when uh, Carol went up to the shower block, Cheryl was nowhere to be seen. A massive search ensues. There are some suspects. There's a lot of focus put on a swarthy European-looking gentleman. I think largely because he looked different to the mostly English migrants and other Aussies here on the beach at that time. Was there anything in that sighting, in that suspect? In relation to that, there was a male, there was a witness there, Peter Goodyear, who was um, seated outside the toilet block and he allegedly sees a person with olive skin carrying a child with fair hair across the car park and then shortly thereafter he sees that car drive away. He doesn't see the child inside the car. And he gives the police a description of a motor vehicle, which the CIB, which was um, the old Criminal Investigation Bureau from Sydney, and the local police circulated and basically hunted down everybody with a particular type of motor vehicle in the Illawarra region without success. So, Frank, the investigation gets to a certain point where all leads are exhausted. And what happens next? Well, after she went missing, I think the police did a very good job of searching the area. Uh, they had... Uh, army, they had lifeguards, they had volunteers, they did a search for a number of days without any success. After a while, it just went cold on the police investigation. There's one aspect I'm quite critical of that investigation back in the day was that Ricky Grimmer, the last person to see Cheryl, he left her at the entrance to the ladies' change room there at, at Ferry Meadow Beach. Police never spoke to him. He had an eyewitness account of the circumstances just before she went missing, which would be critical to corroborating anything going forward. How much did that hamper the initial investigation, Damien? Well, I believe the uh, Grimmer family, the mother and father, wanted to protect their children from any further trauma. So the police obtained an oral version from the boys, but nothing in writing, which we could rely on many, many years later. It's more important to remember that Incidents that occur and are recalled on the spot are very, very important many, many years later at a trial of some description. So we lost the plot there. We lost the ball. We didn't get that particular incident recorded. We did later on, many, many years later, when we spoke with Ricky and got his version, but I think it's very important that you go to any crime scene that you get as much information as possible and make sure it's recorded correctly. Because the great challenge in this case, and it's still today, is corroborating a certain piece of evidence we'll deal with now. 2016, Frank, you've just finished a very stressful murder case. You've got a result on a Serbian murder down in Illawarra region. You've got a good result there. You've had a heart attack in the recent period. You're recovering from that. You're on light duty. They've taken your gun away. Why did your supervisor give you the Cheryl Grimmer case? Of all cases he could have given you. Well, it's an old case, old cold case. I believe the supervisor at the time didn't think it was going to go anywhere. It was just something to review, uh, look at again, just to fill in time, basically. I think he said to you, if there's anyone can solve it, it's you, Frank. Little did he know that you were going to go much, much further than anyone would have expected. I remember when the supervisor gave me the brief, it was only a couple of pages, it was a small file, and I asked him where the rest of the brief is, and it was in New South Wales archives. So I made a request to get the, the rest of the brief. They're all old running sheets, the type uh, running sheets that they did at the time in 1970. And uh, eight boxes came down from New South Wales archives. Damien was on light duties too. He came down to Wollongong and we just uh, hit it off. And Damien one day said to me, you need a hand with anything? And I said, yeah, I've got this cold case. And it started from there. He said, okay, let's separate and get four boxes each or something. Because Damien, in I think your own words, 
your supervisors thought, let's give this case to these two old dinosaurs, keep them busy while they're <laughs> on light duties, keep them out of our hair, but with no real expectation you'd do anything serious, correct? Well, I'd two old broken down bloody dogs here, me and Frank, because <laughs> I'd had a heart attack as well and I'd had some time off after the League Cafe siege being involved and I lived uh, close by and it was just easier for me to return to work to Wollongong. And I got there and, you know, I wanted to do something and there was a number of detective sergeants in the office, so I really was just filling a gap somewhere, helping out. And Frank took it on initially, then I came on board. It was never placed onto a electronic record, our investigative system. So we spent months and months reading the brief and then, as we're reading, we're typing information into the computer. Now, the good thing about this is that we can we can cross, we can search for words, etc., all across the whole platforms. So, I, you know, I didn't know, these guys probably didn't think we we're going to do anything with it, but it mounted. Because typically with these cold cases, you are limited by the condition of the evidence, how it's been kept all those years. You were fortunate that the previous detectives had boxed everything up. You think it's everything. So you really had the entire case. So continuity was there. There was no issues there. If you found some evidence, you could proceed with a prosecution. Is that how you felt when you looked at the material you, you were given? Yes, and I thought, I said to Frank, um, Frank would probably back me up on this. I said, well, I looked at the boxes of the evidence and I said, Frank, the killer's in here somewhere. It's up to us to find it. Never forget that. Never forget those words. So, you start going through it. You're working across from each other in the office, shouting back and forth about what you found. Damien, one day you see something quite remarkable. Tell us the circumstances. I've come across a signed confession in a typed record of interview from this um, pseudonym of Mercury. I should add that the, his name is suppressed. His name is not Mercury, but this is the name the courts have given him because we can't actually use his name in this podcast. So he has a real name, but in this case, we'll refer to him as Mercury. So you look reading this confession. What does it say? It was very blunt. Um, he was asked initially his name and place of birth, where he lived, and uh, it went into the fact that he'd had information in relation to a missing little girl, and he basically confessed to murdering her and taking her away from the beach for the purpose of having sexual intercourse with her. How did you feel? Look, if someone was making this up, it was a sick joke. But we read this and what was more interesting with Frank and I in a uh, technical aspect of the investigation and, you know, we've been around the cops for long enough and old head detectives that everything that he was saying was also corroborated by other witness statements in the brief. And we couldn't believe that this confession, signed confession, later on dismissed as a as a hoax. Well, in these situations with two detectives, good pairings, one tries to knock down the other one's theories, in effect, to corroborate them. What was your attitude? Damien's got this piece of paper, which is basically the key to the case. What's your attitude towards it? When uh, Damien showed me that, he said to me, this is when the work starts. And then we had to really look at that and that statement and corroborate or go through that statement with a fine-tooth comb and find out what can we prove that's correct in that statement and who, what if there's anything uh, false in that statement. When we looked at that statement and gone through all the pages and what Mercury said, we haven't found anything that is not true. Uh, what he did before, what he did after, we corroborated all that. Uh, we went to extreme lengths to some of the things he, he spoke about in that statement. And uh, we found it all to be true. Even went far enough where he went to West Australia. We even corroborated that, uh, that he worked for somebody there. Six years after finding this statement, this man is still free. 
a court has dismissed this confession as inadmissible. Mm. In your heart of hearts, is this man guilty of the murder of Cheryl Grimmer? Frank? Yes. Any doubts? No. In all my years and uh, in 23 years of policing, somebody to come up with a, a interview like that, a statement like that, and when you talk to Detective Finlay, the, the guy that typed the statement with Sergeant Parrington who ran the investigation at the time in 1970, when they sat down with Mercury, he spoke without stopping, just flowed on. Everything just flowed on. There was no stopping, no stopping him and asking him a question. He just spat it all out. And to come up with those details in that statement, and there's one thing about a water bubbler, and I'll never forget uh, what Damien said. There's, <laughs> there's two things Damien said in this investigation, the, uh, the murders in these boxes and the water bubbler. you got to remember, he, he came up with this confession 16 months later, and he remembers every detail. You ask anybody else on that beach to come up with details like this guy had, how does he remember all that? You know, the towel, the colour of her costume, uh, all this sort of evidence that it was it's true. We should work through the elements of this confession. Who was Mercury and what was he doing there at Ferry Meadow Beach that day, Damien? Uh, well, what we know that he had uh, been a runaway from a boy's home in Victoria. He'd actually had resided at the Ferry Meadow Lodge prior to moving to Victoria with his family. So really in New South Wales, the only place he really knew was Ferry Meadow. So when he had absconded from Victoria to the south coast of New South Wales. He went to Sydney, caught a train to Ferry Meadow on that morning and he tells us in that record of interview that he goes to the beach and he hangs around that beach and he's there nearly all day. And he says that at a certain time he sees, and this is what is very important in the record of interview corroborating the evidence that we had already gathered, that uh, he saw a bunch of children and particularly describes what Cheryl was wearing walk up towards the direction of the men's toilet block. Importantly, he says in that record of interview that he was sitting in an area where he actually couldn't see the entrance to the shower block, but he knew they were going in there because of the direction that they travelled. Now, what gets more important in this is that many years later, we go back and we do sightings by using laser and where the original wall of the surf club, because it had been extended... He's actually telling the truth. Anyway, he says he sees that they go into the shower and then subsequently thereafter he sees her emerge from the shower with these boys and in particular sees the eldest brother Ricky or, or a boy, and we know now to be Ricky, to pick little Cheryl up, Cheryl up by the waist to give her a drink of water at the bubbler. Now, you can't make that stuff up. You can't. But you can corroborate it. You can. And that's what that's what they failed to do. And herein is my greatest criticism for the original investigation is they never spoke directly to Ricky Grimmer, who could have told them, yes, it was me that hoisted young Cheryl up for a drink at the bubbler. And that would have given them a, an important point of corroboration right then and there. Mercury says that he had to come round from the side of the building and he placed his hand over her mouth to take her away because had she screamed, the man sitting on the wall outside the lady's portion of the shower block would have heard her scream. Adam, it took Frank and I over to Nottingham in the in the United Kingdom to corroborate the evidence of Mavis Goodyear, who was the wife of Peter. And unfortunately, Peter had died some years previously. But her evidence as to where 
her husband was seated outside the shower block, puts it in no cold stone hard fact that he was there and he was the man that Mercury was, was referring to. And we found that very, very important. And you established exactly where he was by Mavis's memory of smelling his cigarette smoke from around the corner. Well, look, it was unbelievable. And only about three days before this, Frank and I had undergone some training in relation to a interview technique. And it was about basically placing your, your subject in a comfortable room, getting them to close their eyes to relax and just take themselves back to that time. One of the most important aspects of any evidence that a, a police officer can can get is sight, what they hear, what they can feel and what they can smell. And Mavis Goodyear went back into a very controlled and relaxed state of mind. She closed her eyes, she put her head back on the couch, it was very comfortable. Her and her two daughters were in the female portion of the ladies' changing room having a shower. And she goes back and I asked the pertinent question about how do you know that your husband was outside the changing room where you yourself and your two girls were having a shower. Bearing in mind the top of the shower block was all made of besser bricks, so in, in those days, the old days of the council buildings. And she said, Peter was outside having a camel cigarette and I could smell it wafting in through the bricks. And when she popped her head out, that's where he was. And that to me was very, very important because Mercury says that's where he was. So you're able to corroborate that statement. Now, Parrington and Findlay, who were in, in charge of that investigation, Parrington in particular, he's a senior sergeant, third class, he's an experienced detective. He takes hold of this case. He has doubts though. And I don't buy the idea that these guys were incompetent, inefficient. They'd been good enough to get a confession to this point, so I'm going to give them credit. But they have doubts about this guy's credibility, Mercury's credibility. Why were those, Frank? The doubts they had, they didn't have any physical evidence uh, linking him to Cheryl's disappearance. They did a few searches after the confession. The towel that Mercury says he threw in, in a drain, they looked for that, they couldn't find that. We're talking about 16 months after she went missing, but they couldn't put anything physical evidence. There was no body, there was no physical evidence, and that's when they say, well, we can't, we haven't got enough at this stage. And also, he was making contradictory statements, and there was a growing feeling in the investigation that he was a fantasist, that... The, the story he told of taking her body away from the beach to, a, to a, a bushy location just didn't fit. And the police at the time had spoken to a landowner. What did the landowner tell them that tended to put them off this idea that Mercury had carried Cheryl for some distance, by the way? This is not just around a corner. This is through back streets of, of Ferry Meadow as it was then. There are people, this is daylight, right? So to take a young child who's gagged and also her hands bound... You've got to be going pretty well not to be seen. Let's talk about the farmer first off and his property. What did he tell police? Oh, well, originally police uh, went there some 16 months later and spoke to the original landholder and, and because Mercury had described a tubular-style grid across the uh, entrance to the property and a strand of barbed wire at the entrance. And when they went back and spoke with the original landowner, he said it wasn't there. However, we did find out later on through the sun that that was in fact, it was in place then. So that farmer said that there was some works going on that property and before this incident, that grid and fence were gone. Exactly right. It wasn't there. But um, we went back and spoke with the son of that original landholder who said that it was there because he was a person that had built it and installed it. 
Doesn't the council have records? Couldn't we look this up? Put it beyond doubt? Well, look, we went to all the council records. There was no DAs required in those days just to put a cattle grid in or back in, we're talking about the 70s. So Parrington and Finlay at, at the time, the two detectives from the CIB, saw that this mercury was, you know, playing games with them basically and, and eventually did record in a running suit that he was to maintain a person of interest, but that's as far as it went. So Parrington and Findlay, as the junior, he was the typist effectively, he didn't have much of a say in this investigation, they concluded that he was a fantasist, that this should be disregarded. Looking at the box as you found it, Damien, would you have come to the same conclusion? No. It wasn't until I read the confession by this Mercury that I knew straight away we're, we're dealing with somebody who, who had to be there, who must have been there on that particular day to give the details so accurate and what other witnesses had explained to police, what they saw and did on that particular day. That was my mind that, yes, look, I think this guy's got more to answer to and that's when we concentrated on him. To be fair, the New South Wales coroner held an inquest in 2011. It was available to the coroner. Why wasn't it brought out then? Well, I believe the person of interest or Mercury was alleged by police in that earlier inquest that this person couldn't be found and yet Frank was able to find him within five minutes. That's uh, the issue I have. Uh, if for a coroner to be presented a confession like that and not make comment back to the police, say, listen, I think you need to do a little bit more investigation and come back and talk to me about this confession and the author, well, why can't you find him? If you can't find him, uh, is he dead? You know, show me a death certificate. And that was it. Because the coroner relies upon the quality of the investigation, the police officers who put it together. How would you describe that coronial investigation in 2011? Was it just a pro forma, tick the boxes kind of thing? This is a cold case, nothing's going to happen here. And clearly Parrington and Finlay have, dis- have discounted this confession back in 1971. Why should we do any more work? Was that the attitude, do you think? Yes, Oh, I think it was inadequate. The witnesses or persons of interest weren't uh, followed through. I think it was inadequate. And let's be clear about this. The coroner has a duty to find out who, what, when, where and why. And we understand that. And the rules of evidence in a coroner's court are a little bit more relaxed than a criminal court. And don't forget, the coroner doesn't have to hear all the evidence in one day and make a determination. The coroner can, rightly so, what Frank pointed out, we can adjourn for a later time for that evidence to be presented so the coroner they can make a decision or a finding. And it looked like that statement by the officer in charge at the time just said there was a confession made but it was deemed to be false without any further ado or any further investigation. So, yes, it was inadequate. There was no pressure for the coroner to hear that matter and come to a conclusion. I think it's probably more appropriate for it to be adjourned, but it was never asked. But the coroner is ruled and guided by the, the police or the officer in charge of, of this particular investigation then back in 211 so the coroner's hands are basically tied. but I think you raise an interesting point. The coroner could have adjourned this matter, could have adjourned it until today, really. Well, it's now that it's been, uh, the evidence has been no further, no further action through the DPP for the indictment of murder. It basically goes forced back into the coronial aspect where the coroner can take it back under his or her command. And at a later stage, if there is a request for a further inquest, then I'm sure that those appropriate channels could be followed through. The coroner's had a look at this in the last couple of years and, and declined to proceed again. Do you find that a bit of a slap in the face, Frank, to all the work you guys did, that there's just vastly more evidence than there was back in 2011, and yet still the coroner has put it in the too hard basket? There is more evidence and never got to court and we never got to trial. You've got to remember that. This was a wadi on a, uh, an argument of a confession to get into court. So 
All the evidence was not, never put out there. I know the family asked for a second inquest and it was knocked back, and that's in the coroner's hands. I, I was not privy to that decision, so that's something we'll have to ask them. Okay, so the coroner decides that mercury is a mystery, can't be found, end of the story. Frank, you get onto it. How did you find him in five minutes? Just through our network system. So you basically put this guy's full name and his date of birth in there and bingo, there he was. Yeah. Why didn't they do that before? <laughs> you have to ask them. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. In the couple of hours we had his uh, driver's licence, I had a photo of where he house lived on, from Google. I think Damien also, down the trap, we found uh, he's changed his name. It's interesting, this use of aliases and so forth, because at the time of Cheryl's disappearance, he's using a false name as well, and shortly after that, he changes his name. What is he running from? He was already running when this incident occurred. He was in the Mount Penang Training School, which was one of the greatest factories of disturbed and villainous people in New South Wales, second only to Tamworth. He was with some terrible people in there. Why was he there in the first place, Damien? Do you know? Yes, he had been arrested on a stealing offence and because of his age and the fact that he was basically homeless, he was placed into the care and attention of the minister, I think, in those days. This guy likes to confess. He's done it once on the record, but we know that he was speaking to an official from the court complex there in Sydney, a Mr Leckie. Yes. And he seems to have told Mr Leckie that he'd done something very bad in relation to Cheryl Grimmer. How much effort was put in to try to corroborate other versions of this confession, whether from Mr Leckie or, or other inmates and associates that he had in the era? Well, there was no statement obtained from Mr Leckie at all as to what Mercury had told him in the first place. And mind you, that information was that serious that Leckie rang the CIB directly, not the local One Division General Duties Police in Central Lane or in Phillips Street in Sydney, he deemed that information, what he was told by Mercury, to be that important and he rang the CIB directly and spoke with Parrington, who then went to that shelter with Detective First Class Finlay, where they then conducted a record of interview. So, at that point, you've got this confession about to happen and if there'd been some effort put into this, that statement from Leckie, if it could be found, if it was made, would be a corroboration for the statement he was about to give. If Leckie had said, I was present in that room whilst that interview was taking place, or another person of that complex was there as a, not a support person, but an independent person, then we would have had the evidence that record of interview may have been admissible in a future trial. Because he wasn't there to talk about murdering Cheryl or abducting Cheryl. He was there on a break and enter matter or a stealing matter, correct? He's just being held there on a minor matter before he went to Mount Penang. And he then, as I said, said something to Mr Leckie, who was the manager there, who deemed it that important that the CIB work and contacted immediately, which they were. So another missed opportunity there. But you guys weren't missing opportunities. Frank, you located Mercury. You found he was in Victoria. You now needed a way to him. What did you do next? Well, we looked at uh, his history. Uh, who was, was he married? Did he have kids? Where he lived? And we just started doing surveillance methods. The first time we actually got close to him was uh, when we went down to interview his ex-wife. Was he known to police before this, down in Victoria? No. As far as we know, no. No form, living he, quietly? Yep, under the radar. 
you find his ex-wife. Yeah. What was the circumstances of their breakup? What we've been told and what the, on record that there was a bit of violence involved. She couldn't handle the relationship anymore and ended up in there breaking up after a number of years of marriage. So big red flags there. So they break up, you contact her. Did you tell her what it was about? Yes, we did. And she must have been surprised, or was she not surprised, given that she had, he had a chequered past, with her at least? Oh, look, it was either going to be, um, and Frank and I discussed this at length, we had contacted a colleague of ours, and I've got to give a shout-out to a fantastic guy and a very, very dedicated detective, Detective Senior Constable Danny Shattuck. We spoke about either she could be hostile towards us or be on our side. So I said to Frank, look, let me speak with her and we'll find out either she's going to be with us or against us. Are you the charming one, Damien, or? Frank's nodding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Frank's, Frank's nodding his head. Well, it was about just being courteous and being open and I'm always a big believer in being frank with people and not sprinkling happy dust over stuff and hearing what they want to hear. We had to be frank with her. So we sat down with her in the kitchen and she made us a cup of tea. At the same time, though, you've got to be concerned that she may tip off her ex-husband and your whole investigation gets blown. How do you judge that moment? Look, I think it's something that we have instilled in, as in cops, you know, that we know that um, somebody we're speaking with we can trust and it was just the demeanour of this particular lady and we went out on a limb doing it, by the way. Don't think that we didn't, but we did. But I was very comfortable by the end of the day that we had her absolute 110% support and we saw, swore her to secrecy in the old Boy Scout way and, look, she was on board with us from that day onwards. So a meeting was organised between Mercury's ex-wife and Mercury where she was going to let him know what the police were asking about and so forth. How was that set up and what, what was the purpose of that little operation, Frank? Well, that was a uh, under warrant, under above board. She met him at McDonald's, so it was in public area, and that was recorded. And she basically told Mercury that police in Wollongong are asking about the missing little girl, about Cheryl Grimmer, yeah. and they want to talk to you about it. And during that meeting, she handed him my business card, which I never expected uh, she would do. Mostly when people are questioned by police about heinous things like murders, they wait to be called. But Mercury didn't. What did he do next? Oh, it was a Saturday. Uh, I was at my in-law's place. We're having, about to have lunch and I get a phone call on my mobile phone, a mail on the other end, and I, now I know it to be Mercury. And he says to me, are you detective? He had trouble pronouncing my name. And I said, yeah, it is. It says, my ex-wife said, do you want to talk to me? I said, yes, we do. And he said, uh, what's it about? And I said to him, you tell me. And there was a bit of a pause there and he says, is it, is it about a young girl, a girl from Ferry? He said Ferry Beach. He didn't say Ferry Meadow. I remember that clearly. And I said, it could be. And the next thing he says, I regret what I did every day of my life. And then I just, I paused. Uh, I knew it wasn't recorded. I knew there'd be uh, issues with what he says to me. And I said to him, listen, uh, we are going to come down with you. There'll be another detective sergeant coming down with me and we're going to interview about this. I, well, I, and I said to him, I think you should get legal advice. What he said to you on the surface is very damning. I regret that day for the rest of my life. But, of course, there are two critical days in this story, the day when Cheryl went missing and the day a year plus later when he gives the interview. So his defence counsel, just putting on their hat for a minute, yeah, might, say, might say, well, he's talking about 
when he made a false confession, which has now followed him all the way to 2016. When you heard him say that, what what was the common meaning you took from what he was saying? Yeah, I get your point. Could have been taken both ways. For me, he murdered Cheryl. Okay, you can give a false statement. But again, I'll get back to what Damo said, the detail, the detail in that confession. But something you said really indicates what you thought of that sentence. You, turn, you, you finished the call, you turned to your wife and you said something. I said, I think he, he just confessed to me about murdering Cheryl. And I said to him, I said, I've got to ring Damo up straight away. And I think I did. I, I contacted you shortly after and I recorded it all. What was your attitude, Damien? Yeah, it was surprising um, that he'd call Frank. It was a day that we weren't at work, so nothing was recorded lawfully, but yeah. Frank uh, did take notes of that conversation. And it's a delicate moment, Frank, because I, I guess people listening might say, well, why didn't you ask him the question? Why didn't you follow up with more questions and hammer him over the phone? You weren't recording it. And secondly, you were trying to create a rapport where you could now go to the in-person interview, record it, and get a confession. Was that part of your strategy? Correct. I was thinking, I don't want to get him offside. I know Damien and I were going to go down and uh, interview this guy, and we had to get it recorded properly. Because there'll be a getting in court, I know it's going to be, uh, just because he told me over the, the mobile phone, it's not going to be, it's going to be an issue getting it in court big time. And what happened though, Damien? Well, we turned up at Frankston Police Station as arranged. He came to the police station. He was duly arrested by warrant and cautioned under the Victorian scheme. I also cautioned him under New South Wales in respect to being arrested. He, he didn't flinch. There was no emotion. When I said, yeah, my intention is to convey you back to New South Wales, where I'll seek your extradition today from the court and return you to New South Wales tomorrow, there wasn't one emotion at all from him. And if it was me and I was not guilty, I'd be climbing up the walls and yelling out of my heist, but there was nothing from him whatsoever. Even when he went into custody, there's civilian staff in Victoria to look after custody as well. In that lunch period before we went to the court, the custody staff said to Frank and I that it's a pretty cool customer you got there. He's not, not doing anything, not saying anything, and there was no emotion. I thought it was a little bit bizarre, actually. Well, also the fact that he turned up without a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, well, he'd been told by me no less than five or six times on that phone call when I spoke with him to strongly seek that you get legal advice. Uh, you are going to be interviewed about this matter, and he turned up by himself. You wonder whether back in 1971 he was aware that he was a person of interest. He made that statement, the confession, but it wasn't continued. You wonder whether he, back in his mind when you spoke to him, this had been resolved 30 years before for him. Yeah, and I think the fact that when that didn't go any further with the confession and that Parrington and Finlay had done their investigation from the CIB, uh, it was returned to custody and I believe that probably, and I'm only saying this probably, that it's probably word got back to him via the Mount Penang staff that you're being stupid, you know, you're making stuff up, the cops aren't going to do anything with it, but that's his resolution then that, you know, he got away with murder. On the day we arrested him or charged him down in Frankston, I asked him after, I said, what do you think was going to happen here today? And he looked at me and says, oh, I thought we'll just talk about it and get back to us and get back to me later on. He just had, there was no emotions. Yeah, very cool. You say this, very cool, no emotions, very controlled, um, not bothered, but within a short period of time, he's in a psychiatric facility. What happens between the time that you question him and this happens? Yeah, uh, he plays the, uh, the mental card. Mm. 
You'd have to say he had a good lawyer because the strategy from day one was to discredit the 1971 confession. I mean, in terms of sure things in homicide, there ain't any, right? But this must have been about as close as one could imagine to a sure thing, a signed confession. In fact, when you interviewed him, he went and signed each page of that confession. And in so doing, he adopted the statement. What what does it mean when you adopt a statement, Damien? Well, he's basically saying, I, do you agree that you made this statement back in 1971? Yes. Will you now sign each page of this document to say that this is your signature that you signed in 1971 and this is your record of interview? And he adopted that on record. But not the content. 82 questions yep. were in that interview. The initial interview, yes. And he seemed to nod to most things until he gets to the critical allegation of taking Cheryl. Did you see his demeanour change? Did you see any flicker of emotion when those questions began to be raised? Well, he was saying yes to all the answers, questions I was asking him in the first part of the record of interview. Now, he had to go through, obviously, the background, etc. And we get stuck into the hard part of the record of interview, particularly um, questions, question eight, question 14. Now, when it came down to a three-year-old girl, he denied it completely. And even said throughout the interview that he'd never been to Ferry Meadow Beach in his life which we knew was a lie because we could see that the evidence he gave back in 1971 puts him there and he knows the area, he knows the surf club, he knows everything about that area and yet he denies ever being there in his first in the first place. And what kid was living 600 metres away at a migrant hostel out from England wouldn't go to the beach. And this lie, which is what it is, appears to be a lie straight up, must have given you an, even more optimism this was going to work. He was he was going to go down for this. Look, we, we go through when we interview, and I'm not going to give any trade secrets away, but it's basically, you know, we, we're going in there, we've ticked all the boxes prior to going into a record of interview with anybody. We know what the evidence is, you know, and they may not know that we know, but nine times out of ten we know that they know that they don't know that why know, <laughs> if that makes any sense. And so we, we tick all the boxes before we go in. So we know what we're going to say. We, we know what the outcome we want to reach. We know what the questions we have to ask and particularly about the evidence. Mm. And it wasn't surprising to me when Frank and I asked him the, the hard questions about taking a three-year-old girl that he, we, I expected him to deny it all along because if Cheryl had been an 18-year-old girl, he might have put his hand up to it, but not a three-year-old girl. It's a shame. Mm. I mean, a number of things in the statement don't make any sense to me. For instance, he talks about taking her away from the beach. He's plans to have sexual intercourse with her, he removes the gag and she starts screaming and that's the reason he strangles her apparently in his confession. Yes. But it makes no sense. I mean, why do you need to remove the gag to rape this poor little child? To me, it raises the possibility that there's such a great sense of shame, he wants to deny the sexual aspect and dwell on the accidental murder. I can only go on that the fact that he took her in the first place was to have sexual intercourse with her and that's exactly what he said. Now, Frank, you'd, as I said earlier, you'd just finished a very complex, very serious murder investigation. You'd had your heart attack, you're recovering and so forth and you spoke to me on the way up in the car here about your bucket getting pretty full at this stage. You've been in for a long time, a lot of very serious matters. These things do take their toll. How much was riding on the success of this investigation for you personally and where you're at in your career? Oh, it's, um, <sighs> right. sorry. Yeah, okay, mate. 
<laughs> yeah, it's okay. I'm there, brother. It's all right, buddy. It, it, this case has affected me big time. Uh, it's always close to the surface. Yeah, it's, took it, it's taken a toll. You're still carrying this load, aren't you, mate? And Damien, you'd had your own issues to this point. You'd had a heart attack as well. Yeah, that was because I'm just bloody lazy. <laughs> and, um, uh, I don't think. I don't think so. Damien. How, mu- how much did you? How much did you two dinosaurs really identify with each other, and and say, you know, this is this is a bit of a dad's army uh, <laughs> job here, and and all the young Flash Harrys are doing the uh, the uh, the new jobs, the the ones in the Daily Telegraph that are about to be solved, and you two old farts are working on this 30, 40 year old mystery, which most people would have said, ah. No, no chance of resolution there. Was there a little bit of the pair of you saying, I'm going to stick it up all the dadding Thomases? Was that part of it? I think we just had, well, I, don't, I think we just had resolve, Frank and I, that when we got this job, you know, people going, oh, look, it's, you know, you won't have any witnesses alive because they're all dead, you know, da, 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 da. Um, we've, it's been before the court, coroner's court before, you know, there's no interest here. But, uh, you know, when you get two blokes like Frank and I, and we're not that far apart in ages, et cetera, you know, you give us a, we're like, you give us a bone and we won't leave it alone until it's finished, you know. And I think even our commanders were surprised that the analogy that we came up with and the number of inconsistencies with the investigation or what Mercury had told the police way back in the 70s and the new evidence that we'd gathered, they went, hang on. This brief's got legs now, and we got the support then, 100%. And our old detective inspector, Brad Ainsworth from Wollongong, was fantastic with his support for us. Because the whole thing would come down to that confession and how that confession was taken, how it was warned and cautioned. You obviously had advice from the Crown solicitor about the admissibility of that statement. Were you confident you could get it through the break? Well, we had, uh, yes, that's right, we had the solicitor from police headquarters gave us the go-ahead, basically, to charge, gave us the okay, um, and these are the charges and the indictments that should be laid. So we were very, very confident. And, you know, we'd, as I say, we don't go out on, on a whim and lock someone up for a homicide 48 years later. We take it and we test our evidence before independent eyes, and particularly with legally qualified. And we went out there and we got that advice back from him to say, Yes, you do have a brief, and yes, you should charge. So you had a situation where, back in the day, Mr Leckie of the court service had brought Mercury to the detectives, Parrington and and Findlay. They had interviewed him. They gave him what they thought was a proper warning and cautioning and continued. But when it gets into court, Mercury's solicitor, his whole attack is on that interview. What was the line of attack on that interview? Oh, well, I can see from there that was the fact that there was no independent person present whilst the interview was taking place and also probably his mental state at the time of that when that interview was recorded. He was a juvenile. Because he was only at the time 17 years of age. In that era, there was no requirement for an independent person to be present or a legal guardian or, or mummy or daddy to hold your hand in those days when you were being interviewed. It came in six years later. And, of course, I think listeners need to understand this provision is there to protect the administration of justice. The old saying, better a, a thousand guilty men go free than one innocent man get locked up. This is there to protect this. And, and we've seen this phenomenon in America a lot where, where people continue to interview a suspect until they confess, and particularly w- with juveniles. So it's, it's put there for good reason. But did you think this was going to be a hurdle for you at the time? 
No, not from not from the initial legal prognosis we got back from uh, our legal people to say that was lawful. That was lawful at the time when we arrested and charged him, and, and the brief was served. I, I said to Frank, "Well, you know the, what they can really attack us on here will be that record, initial record of interview, and we were right." So, what did the judge finally find? Well, look, there's, it's a long judgment by Justice Hume. Um, all I can say that he found the record of inadmissible due to a number of uh, factors. And uh, one of those factors was that an independent person wasn't present. And also another factor was his alleged mentality of the mind or his mental health conditions at the time of making that statement. It could be argued, but Justice Hume basically admitted that the record of interview was inadmissible. And with the Crown and I, we both agreed that the matter couldn't proceed if that record of interview wasn't admitted into evidence because all the evidence that Frank and I had gathered was around that central record of interview back in 1971. Justice Hume described this interview, if it was admitted, to not be fair to the defendant. Fair? What's fair about this case? What's fair about the Grimmer family waiting all these years to even learn about this confession? What's fair about the process that took their daughter away from them? Do you think this decision was just? I, you know, my my opinion on that. There are cases that come through once in your lifetime in a career uh, and you look at the evidence at hand. You got a confession that was taken at a juvenile justice centre it was taken by two police officers that were called there. Mr. Mercury said, I did this, so they went there after Mr. Leckie said, so they cautioned him. He gave a statement, free-flowing. There was no under the care of Mr. Leckie. He was in the juvenile justice centre. We go through, the parents weren't told about this confession, and that's probably maybe was a call that detectives made at that time. The parents pass away without knowing there was a confession. He goes to a coroner's court. Coroner says nothing about the confession. He basically says, yeah, we can't find or The police say they can't find him and they let it go. We interview him. He signs that confession. He says, yeah, that's my, my statement. I take ownership of that statement. And then he says to us, I was never at the beach after he's taken, made that confession. And he's uh, did a walkthrough with police a couple of days after, showing this is where I went. And then for a judge to say, we can't admit that confession. And you tell that to the, the family. Uh, you know what the reaction's got to be. And for you, Frank, you're one of those policemen who get involved with families. You're you're a victim's policeman, which I love. Guys who actually under, yeah. try to understand what the family's going through and, and inform them and work with them. And I've read where you say that you are actually a brother to the three surviving Grimmer children. That's a good thing and a bad thing also for me, for, uh, for my mental state. You wear your heart on your sleeve. I do. And Damien's the same. He, he wears his heart on his oh, I know what he's like. Have a look at the Dawson case, how many years he worked on that. And I'm sure he shed a few tears when uh, the verdict came down on that. So yeah, yeah, I, live my, I wear my heart on my sleeve and uh, I'm passionate about my job and that's what's good and bad for me. So you have to go to the family and say, Listen, after all this work, this hard evidence, this this absolute concrete link that we've established, a retrospective law that did not exist at the time of the interview is now the reason that your family will once again be dealt this horrible blow. True. And then you, they'll ask you, well, if an adult was in that room, what difference was it going to make? You're still going to give that confession the way he did. So at that moment, Mercury's been on remand for 21 months. He walks free. Yes. 
What is that feeling like, Damien? Uh, well, how do you explain to the family for a start as to why they're walking free? And that's the hard part because they're untrained. They don't know. Um, they don't know the technicality or legal legalities of the decision made by the justice. And you try and explain it in simple man's terms, it makes it even worse. And he walked free, yes, he did. And, yeah, it's a hard, it's a, it was a hard moment, it was particularly for the family, yeah. You question yourself, did I do a good job? What didn't I do that got it to this point today for this decision? Or is there nothing that could take this decision away that was going to be made anyway? And you do question your, sen- your sense of self. And we worked hard on this for a number of years, as briefers, don't, and we was constant, but uh, this was a very important to us, so we did put a lot of time into it. And for me, it uh, was a bit more, I was questioning myself and saying, should I, why did I pick this brief up in the first place? Should I just did what everybody else did and just say, well, it's there, go through it, nothing to be done, put it back in the box and goodbye. Frank, I have no doubt that this brief chose you, <laughs> not yeah, the other way around. The, the brief killed me too. These reversals continued. The Attorney-General, Mark Speakman, had the opportunity to override this and this retrospective law and get this confession into the court, get this trial beyond that early stage. He also decided not to because the the chances of of success in the appeal were minimal. Wow, another hammer blow. Yeah, and he didn't invoke his special power, which I thought um, unusual, but he has the ability to do that and it wasn't taken up in this case. But doesn't this also future-proof this investigation, that if you took him to the court and tried to have a go on a circumstantial case and he was found not guilty, double jeopardy kicks in unless you've got fresh compelling evidence. You can't put him before the court and you're taking away the opportunity from one of your brother or sister detectives now to bring him to court again. Now you got to remember, this never got to court. This was only an uh, argument on the confession, which was never admitted, and that was the end of it. We never got to trial. So isn't it better to have failed now than, say, at a verdict? Yeah, sure, but we, we still want him to sit in front of the court and say, well, okay, if uh, you made a false confession, explain to me now that after you've adopted that statement and you said, this is your statement... Well, explain it, and that's all we. That's what I'm asking for. Yeah, but that won't happen because the interview has been ruled inadmissible. So that was our strength of our case. Don't forget, Adam. That's the only thing we had to go on. By the way, mm. there were some live witnesses, but the only thing that got us over the line here was the fact that Frank and I tried desperately hard to find out if this Mercury was telling us a lie, or telling the police lies back in 1971, and we went. As I said, it took us to England, this brief. There are so many people touched by this horrendous crime. Lives have been shattered and lost. Parents have gone to their grave not knowing where their little daughter was. And we have a person out there who explained in minute detail and corroborated the evidence that Frank and I had gathered over the years of uh, that strike force that we were involved with. And we couldn't find where he was lying. In fact, all we found was the truth. When I read this statement, there's some things that jump out that are common to many sexual offenders and sex murderers where this loitering and praying and selecting a target, taking that target, having their way with them, murdering them, and then taking a trophy. In this case, he said he wanted to take away her swimming costume but didn't because he feared his mother might find it. But for a killer like this, if indeed he is the killer... It's hard to believe this would be the end of his nefarious career. Let's go back to 2016. You go to this box, there's no confession in there. 
what would the investigation look like if you didn't have the confession? Let's take it out of the picture now. Is there enough in there to produce any other profitable lines of inquiry? What I'm, what I'm suggesting here is if a detective today took it up, could they make any headway? No. No, there's nothing else there that uh, implicates Mercury. He's not mentioned anywhere except for that record of interview and that confession. No, not none whatsoever. The LAC um, investigations manager, Brad Ainsworth, when talking about the million-dollar reward that was offered a few years ago, said that there were other persons of interest in this case. Did you look at those other persons of interest? Because typically when you try to knock down those persons of interest, it helps you strengthen your central case. Did you eliminate the other possibilities? Is it possible that the killer still is in the box but not the man you think he is? No, we did look at the other suspects raised back from the 1970 investigation and they were initially all eliminated throughout the inquiry and very, very successfully eliminated by some very senior and competent cops back in those days. And the other ones that were uh, alive and still present, Frank and I had looked at their background, checked their alibis, checked their stories, and they've been eliminated as well. There's only one possible narrative here. Yes. Hmm. Now, we'll talk about the Dawson case another day. Yep. But... Damien, you were critically involved in that investigation that finally brought Chris Dawson to justice. That case was also renowned as very cold. The police had pretty much put it to one side. What does that tell you in this case about the possibility that that piece of evidence, that witness, that critical thing that might get this back in the public eye and back on an active investigation, how likely is it... What does that tell you about this case? Well, it tells me, first of all, and I'll say this if it's my last words I'll take to the grave, that never give up because this was a circumstantial case over 40 years old when there's been no body. And the Crown Prosecutor, Craig Everson, successfully argued to Justice Ian Harrison in a judge alone trial and got a conviction for murder. Never give up. Don't put something aside because it's too hard. Keep looking and keep going until you know that you've done the best as you could possibly do and then go a little bit more harder. Because I can hardly imagine what it's like for you two blokes at this moment where you think of that beautiful little three-year-old girl mm. and a family with no justice and the idea that a retrospective law, a technicality, means that that's the end of the section. Yeah, and it's uh, my heart goes out to the family, to Ricky, his brothers, to his mum and dad, to, you know, the cousins that she's never met, the aunties in England. It's a sad story. A little three-year-old, beautiful little kid. And I just can't imagine that happening to someone. You know, but cops out there, man, if you're listening to me, and don't give up. You know, don't give up. That... That also goes for all the listeners out there too because there were lots of people on that beach at Ferry Meadow in 1970. People have held secrets. I mean, it may be that, you know, you didn't want to say something because your mother's still alive. Now she's passed away. This could be the time. There's also a million dollars on offer for information leading to the conviction of personal persons who abducted and possibly murdered Cheryl Grimmer. The story is only over when the society says it's over. I know Frank's not letting it go. Definitely not. No. 
can't let it go. Uh, it's what Damo says. It's I never lose hope. I'm I'm just hoping some police officers, the DPP, the Attorney General, somebody get back on this case and, and start pushing it again. We've got 16,000 signatures on, on a petition to say, hey, the public's for to push this on and have a look at it again. Is this the way we're going? Is this what the community wants? I understand that as a detective, I understand that as, you know, maybe I got too close to the family. Sometimes it's uh, the judgment's blurred for me and I, I get angry. Uh, like you said, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I just don't understand there are cases where they should be say, hey, this case needs to be looked at again. It needs some more work. You know, you two fellows have done more than anyone could have expected and we're very proud of you in the community for what you've done and the hope you've given to the Grim Affair, but also so many other cases out there. Missing children of this era, bodies never found, suspects never questioned. There are monsters living amongst us and people know who they are. If you've got any inkling about someone that you know or a case that you maybe were connected with, Get in touch. Call Crime Stoppers, 1-800-333-000. Thank you for your time today, Damien Loon and Frank Sanvitale. Thanks, Adam. And thank you for your service to the people of New South Wales. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Production by Matt Dwyer and Bonnie Lavelle. Sound design by Matt Dwyer. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Theme music by Matt Nikolic. This has been a real crime production, written and produced by Adam Shand. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening.